JFK in the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 148, and yes, it is part one of a two part episode about Johnny Roselli and the Castro assassination plots that were associated with the Bay of Pigs invasion. We begin that story today in episode 148, and then we finish the story in episode 149. So again, sorry for that head fake of sorts at the end of episode 147 about what was coming next. The epilogue related to Pepe San Romain and the Alabama National Guardsmen is still coming but it now will be aired as episode 150. Honestly, I couldn't wait to get these episodes on the assassination plots out, as it's one of the most interesting topics in this series. It reads like a James Bond movie. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Enjoy it as much as I did making it. But putting that aside, the one takeaway from this whole story is that the plot to assassinate Castro the attempts that were specifically attached to the Bay of Pigs invasion were a critical step in the invasion itself, a critical step that failed. It was a critical step necessary to achieve success in the invasion itself. In some ways, it was a small logistical part of a highly complex invasion operation, a step that was left to the underworld. And once the government went down that rabbit hole, they had to contend with the Alice in Wonderland place that they now found themselves in. (laughs) Oh, what a web that they had weaved. They themselves would ultimately get caught in its tangle. And now, without further ado, let's listen to episode 148 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. It's really hard for some people to believe that the Bay of Pigs may have failed, at least partially, because Richard Bissell thought he had an ace in his pocket. And that ace in the pocket was Johnny Roselli. Or, should I say, the Mafia. Probably the most important thing, the most important variable 
the most important executable step in the to-do list to retake Cuba in order to have a successful counter-revolution in Cuba was to get rid of Castro. In hindsight, it's not that difficult to understand why government officials like Richard Bissell were willing to live with a rapidly deteriorating invasion plan, one that, when considered in isolation, should have been halted. And it was simply because the calculus was straightforward. If it was still on that they were going to assassinate Castro, then the rest of this invasion business would be less important, even though an invasion obviously was a huge undertaking. The CIA's decision to seek assassination of Castro goes back even further into 1959. In fact, the CIA had already set in motion a major effort to kill Castro on the theory that the revolution would collapse without him. And as early as December 1959, the head of the agency's Western Hemisphere Division, J.C. King, recommended that consideration be given to the elimination of Fidel Castro because it would greatly accelerate the fall of the present government. Indeed, at the first meeting of the Bay of Pigs task force, King predicted that unless Fidel and Raul Castro and Che Guevara were all eliminated in one package, this operation would be a long, drawn-out affair, and the present government would only be overthrown by force. They would ruminate on the idea of taking all three of them out at the same time, but eventually, understanding the complexities of it, they relented to the idea of just focusing on killing Castro himself. For the record here, the CIA was not the first group to get up the gumption to kill Castro. I know that's probably obvious, but it's also relevant. And as you might have expected, the mafia was right in there at the forefront. Long before the CIA showed up on the scene and developed an interest to get rid of him. You see, the mafia in Cuba was not as lucky as somebody like Batista when it came to moving their wealth out before the avalanche of the revolution. Meyer Lansky and Santo Traficante and others in the Havana mob were the big losers in Cuba. You know, as the legend goes, with Batista hauling out some $300 million from the country, and after he was gone, a brigade of revolutionaries found $3 million in cash in a safe in Batista's office in the presidential palace. And as the legend goes, and I think I've mentioned it before on a previous episode, it was almost as if he left it as a tip. And perhaps uh, another more humorous forensic fact about Batista was that he had a Cuban bank account that he'd been unable to transfer the balance of before it was seized. It had $20 million in it. It was helpful to Castro in stabilizing the Cuban government as they made the turn into the revolution. Lansky and his friends were nowhere near that lucky. Mobsters have a way of hiding the money. Whether it was sometimes a part of their bookkeeping efforts or sometimes just the way they physically skimmed the cash right off the top, it was clearly impossible to calculate how much was lost in this economic shakedown. But we all know that the true figures must have been staggering. A good example was the loss of the Hotel Riviera, which alone had cost about $14 million to build and equip. 
although that was the number in the official records, and Lansky himself later said that the hotel really cost closer to $18 million to build. Interestingly enough, about $6 million of the $18 million investment was provided by the Cuban government itself under Hotel Law 2074. And that happened during Batista's rule. So that means that the Havana mob's personal investment in the hotel was somewhere between 8 and $12 million. And the Riviera's own accounting records show that it made a profit of almost $3 million annually. And of course, being the mob, that was the number after the skim, which probably was several million dollars or more on top of that. And heck, that was only one casino in one hotel, and there were so many more like it. The Hilton, the Capri, the Deauville, the Commodoro, the San Suisi, the Tropicana, the Nacional, the Plaza, St. John's, the Presidente, and so many other holdings of the mob. And almost every one of them had been highly profitable. You do the math. And with so many of them, the money involved was absolutely tremendous. But what the mobsters lost in Cuba was really so much more than that in so many ways. You see, it was the most incredible organized crime achievement ever in the history of the world. It was to them a dream come true. They had essentially completely infiltrated a sovereign nation and taken control of everything from financial institutions to the instruments of government power. Everything from the very top all the way to the very bottom. You know, you've always heard people talk about the way the mafia in this country, at its height, in some exaggerated way, had control of a town or a city. That was really an exaggerated tale of some sorts in almost all cases in a place like America, but in Havana, it was real. They ran the place in so many ways. There really had never been anything like it before. And of course, the downfall then, well, it was tremendous. Santo Traficante never stated how much he lost in Cuba, but the rumors that were heard back in the States, particularly in Tampa, was that he had lost everything. He was truly broke. And there were others like him. Rothman, the Clarks, Lefty and Wilbur, Black Jack McGinty, Charlie the Blade, Dino Cellini, they were all sort of scattered afterwards as they went back to Las Vegas or Reno or the Bahamas or Europe. Joe Stasi, who was at one time effectively the head mafia man on the ground for all the casino operations in Cuba, was so broke afterward that he turned to the heroin smuggling business, something that he had never done and there was an anathema about in his life. And that led him to eventually be caught and jailed on narcotics charges. Lansky himself had set his sights on the Dominican Republic, but those aspirations were dashed in 1961 when the dictator there, Rafael Trujillo, was assassinated. Lansky would eventually open a few casino operations in the Bahamas and in England, but it was nothing like what he had done in Havana. Lansky would tell his friends years later that he had left behind some $17 million in cash, which just missed being shipped out of Cuba and distributed to his various partners via Switzerland. But Traficante had suffered more ignominious losses than this. He had been imprisoned for months, 
at Triscornia Detention Center, and he had been on one of Castro's execution lists. And it was true that he was most likely forced into paying a substantial cash bribe to get out of the pickle and live to see another day. There was no doubt that Traficante had the motive and the CIA had the will to get the job done now to kill Castro. And turning back to our story now, it was Lansky we probably should give credit to for taking the first shot at eliminating Castro before the CIA got involved. Lansky allegedly offered a contract of $1 million to have Castro assassinated, and guess who they contacted about putting it all together? A plot to do the deed. If you guessed Frank Sturgis, you would be correct. Sturgis had been more closely associated with Castro before a fallout occurred. The new Cuban government didn't know it yet, but Sturgis had turned against Castro and had begun an undercover dialogue with both the Havana mob and the CIA. In 1975, Sturgis would testify under oath that he was approached during that time frame by casino boss Charles White, and he was offered $1 million to help the mob kill Castro. He was also told that the money behind the transaction was Meyer Lansky's. Sturgis answered that he was ready and willing, but he ultimately declined. Years later, Lansky was interviewed by his biographers on this topic, and he would say this, A number of people came to me with a number of ideas, and of course, I had my own suggestions. It was no secret that I was well-known in Havana, and I did have influence. But I don't think I should go into the details of what was said. Well, we know the outcome of every one of these assassination attempts. Each and every one of them was a failure, as we know. But Lansky's attempt and the recruitment of Frank Sturgis was the very first shot by the mafia at taking Castro out. And it was independent of what would transpire next with the CIA. Before we begin to tell the details of what happened here, you really have to appreciate that the CIA was then, at that moment, at a unique point in its own existence and was operating in a wide-open way. And it's not surprising that they were also at the zenith of their experimental thinking on how to accomplish their mission. And given the unique circumstances that had taken place in Cuba, I don't think that what you're going to hear next is as harebrained an idea as some might think today when viewing it through a modern lens. In the beginning, and perhaps it was because the CIA had such tremendous technical resources available to it, and perhaps it was before they really got serious about the idea of actually assassinating a political leader, well, the early schemes against Castro himself were designed perhaps more to humiliate Fidel than anything else. The scheme to spray his recording studio with an LSD-type substance <laughs> that might cause him to spout some hoped-for delusional mumbo-jumbo that would befuddle the populace or the crazy scheme to lace his shoes with thallium salts using a powerful depilatory, <laughs> the theory being that as the fumes moved upward from his footwear, the chemical would strip the leader of his beard and then deprive him of his charisma and machismo and strength, <laughs> so he would be then less desirable to the public. 
Oh, and there was the whole craziness with a box of poison cigars that had a strain of botulism so overwhelming that Castro would probably drop dead the second the tobacco tube touched his lips. The famous Sidney Gottlieb was asked to provide the technical support on some of these projects, including the cigar project. The botulism toxin had already been tested by Gottlieb on monkeys, and it was determined that it would work. More on Gottlieb in later episodes when we tackle the MK Ultra affair. These and others were all intriguing ideas, but they were, in the end, kabuki theater. And that kabuki theater was exactly what was trying Richard Bissell's patience, or perhaps it was just simply the misfires and not being able to actually execute on any of this and make anything happen yet. All of that prompted a meeting in August 1960 when Bissell was approached by Sheffield Edwards. Edwards had a subject in mind, and it was a simple one. How could they kill Castro? Edwards had an idea. Why not just contract with the mob to do it? The mob had the means and certainly the experience associated with assassination, and best of all, they had the most compelling motive. What Fidel had done in seizing their assets was, to the mafia, an existential grab of their assets and holdings. Of course they had a reason, and perhaps the best reason, for going after Fidel. As they sat and discussed the highly sensitive nature of this idea, they knew that extra precautions would need to be taken. And even though using the mafia might have been a way to ensure that the United States government would not be implicated with so much at stake, there was a reason to take additional steps to further distance the government from this entire operation. They would need what was known as a cutout man, somebody that could become a go-between, between the government and the mafia. First, though, they would need to identify a qualified person in the agency that could even then identify the right person in the outside world who could become that very cutout asset. And the CIA man to do that was Jim O'Connell. He was the operations chief of the agency's security division. He was known as Big Jim, and he was an ex-FBI man with a great track record of engaging in dirty business. O'Connell knew Robert Mayhew. Like O'Connell, Mayhew was an ex-FBI man. He was now a private investigator operating Robert A. Mayhew Associates, or RAMA. He had a bevy of clients, but there was one that was at the top of the list. That was Howard Hughes, a name you all might recognize. And he was, at the time, a California industrialist, an aviator, a defense contractor. He had dabbled in movies. And by that time, he was an all-around weird kind of guy. But he had a whole lot of money. The first order of business was for O'Connell to contact Robert Mayhew. O'Connell would instruct Mayhew that the agency's cover line was a simple one. You would have to pass yourself off as the agent of angry businessmen with Cuban investments. Businessmen that wanted Castro out of the way so that they could recover some of the cash that they had sunk into the country of Cuba. Mayhew had been in the FBI in the 1940s, and then he went on to serve as a counterintelligence agent for the U.S. government in Europe. And at one time, he was actually a personal advisor to J. Edgar Hoover, 
and also a liaison between the FBI and the Central Intelligence Agency. After the war, he got out of the government and he opened his own consulting and detective business. One of the things that his detective agency was good at was surveillance, and he did a lot of it for Howard Hughes. He had other clients too, like Frank Sinatra, but interestingly enough, some of the surveillance was to follow these men's wives and girlfriends, including in Sinatra's case, his then-wife and movie goddess, Ava Gardner. He would follow Hughes' girlfriends, too. He had also engaged in what was known as black bag jobs for the Central Intelligence Agency, that is, engaging in dirty tricks. And one of the more famous ones that he had engaged in was the development of a pornographic movie that he would actually produce, where they got a Russian stewardess to star in it, and they somehow located a male participant who was a dead ringer lookalike for the then Indonesian president, Sukarno. The idea was to make a pornographic movie and then have the movie itself because of the incredibly close resemblance of the male participant to Sukarno, have it become an instrument of blackmail. Jim O'Connell was Mayhew's regular case officer at the CIA on assignments like that, and he had undertaken many of them after leaving the FBI. O'Connell and Edwards decided that they would both go and take a drive together into the suburbs, a visit to Robert Mayhew's house in Virginia. They would sit down with Mayhew and make the case that it was the right thing to assassinate Castro, and it was the right thing for him to become the cutout between the government and the mafia. Mayhew would be the go-between and engage the mafia to kill Castro. Mayhew listened intently, but he was reluctant. He understood what his role would be, that he would be the cutout handler with no official tie to the agency, but in every way. The whole thing, at least to him, sounded outrageous. And he had his own considerations as well, because the Howard Hughes relationship had been taking up more and more of his time. Well, the two gentlemen from the agency used all the leverage that they had and they reminded Mayhew of how much work had come his way. They wanted an answer right now, but Mayhew wasn't ready to give them an answer. They would leave and give Mayhew one day to consider the offer and the risks. Well, we know the story Mayhew would accept, and as soon as he accepted, he knew exactly who he was going to call next. Over the years, Mayhew had been involved in enough unsavory activity that he himself had gotten to know and become well acquainted with a number of underworld figures. But the only one that came to mind for a job like this was Johnny Roselli. Roselli was born in Italy in 1905, and his immigrant name was Filippo Sacco. He would beat the odds and make it out of a tough Boston neighborhood and then eventually get lost for a time in New York before he headed west to make connections with the Chicago mob. It was actually Capone who insisted that he adopt another Italian name and drop the Filippo Sacco moniker. You see, especially the first name Filippo had negative connotations at that time as an Italian minority. Onward, the world would know this man as Johnny Roselli. Mayhew had met him several years back in Las Vegas during a time when Mayhew himself was actually working for comedian Milton Berle. You see, 
Mayhew was trying to help Milton Berle break a contract that he had with Louis Prima. It was dirty business, as Burl was trying to figure out how to access the morals clause of his contract. And so he hired Mayhew to try to help set up Prima by planting some narcotics in his dressing room and then having that lead to an arrest of Prima and thus allow Burl to exit the contract. (laughs) Everybody had their sort of facades. And going back the other way, Roselli knew Mayhew as a lawyer and a high-end private eye. And Roselli also knew that one of Mayhew's biggest clients was Howard Hughes. Roselli himself had a long history. In 1922, Sacco was arrested on narcotics charges in Massachusetts. He first fled to New York for three months before moving on to Chicago, where he changed his name from Filippo Sacco to John Roselli. Roselli moved to Los Angeles in 1924, pleading guilty to bootlegging that same year. Roselli began his California criminal career working for small-time bootleggers, becoming the top truck driver for Tony Cornero. Eventually, Roselli was promoted to working closely with the Cornero brothers and securing the liquor imports into Southern California. He was especially important in bribing and securing the loyalty of Orange County officials, opening up their ports for the gang's use. In 1926, Tony Cornero fled to Canada, escaping a two-year bootlegging sentence. As a result of the gang's dissolution, Roselli went independent. He became further involved in several L.A. area vice rackets, especially prostitution and gambling. Roselli first met Al Capone in 1927 on a trip to Chicago to attend the Jack Dempsey-Gene Tunney boxing match. Capone was holding a party that night at his headquarters at the Metropole Hotel, where Johnny was able to briefly meet him and the Chicago Outfit's inner circle. Roselli next met with Capone at the Biltmore Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. In 1928, Capone invited Roselli to Chicago, this time offering him a role in his organization. Roselli was tasked with working with the Los Angeles crime family, to keep an eye on Capone's investments and facilitate cooperation between the L.A. and Chicago organizations. The L.A. branch of the Mafia was, at that time, under the leadership of Joseph Artizoni, and Roselli worked closely with Artizoni's underboss, Jack Dragna. During this time, Roselli was involved with Los Angeles' offshore gambling racket. He led the mob's hostile takeover of the Monfalcone gambling ship. Roselli's underworld activities sometimes had to be put on hold while he dealt with long bouts of tuberculosis. During this same time frame, Roselli became close friends with film producer Brian Foy, who brought Roselli into the movie business as a producer with Foy's small production company, Eagle Lion Studios. And this is where Roselli is credited on a number of early gangster movies as a producer. Roselli was also close with Columbia Pictures co-founder Harry Cohn. In 1942, Roselli was indicted on federal labor racketeering charges, along with George Brown, the former president of the International Alliance of Theatrical and Stage Employees Union, or IATSE, and Willie Beoff, who was a labor racketeer and a former pimp. But later in 1942, Roselli enlisted in the United States Army, where he served for three years before receiving an undesirable discharge. 
It was while in the service that Roselli was convicted of the extortion scheme to extort money from Hollywood figures. And in 1943, he began serving a prison sentence until his release in 1947. In the mid-1950s, Roselli shifted his focus away from Hollywood and toward the fast-growing and highly profitable gambling mecca, Las Vegas, Nevada. By 1956, Roselli had become the Chicago and the Los Angeles mob's chief representative in Las Vegas. His job was to ensure that the Chicago mob bosses received their share of the burgeoning casino revenues through skimming. However, according to the Los Angeles office of the FBI, Roselli was employed as a movie producer at Monogram Studios. Yes, indeed, this individual that Mayhew had identified had a storied and caricatured past. Shortly, Mayhew would call Johnny Roselli over the phone and he would tell him that he had something important and that the two of them needed to discuss it. Out of that came a lunch meeting at the Brown Derby Restaurant, which is located in Beverly Hills, California. The two enjoyed their meeting and they ate lunch and were having coffee when Mayhew would deliver the pitch about the Castro assassination. Before he did so, he was reminded of the instructions that Edwards and O'Connell had given him, and that was that he was to strictly adhere to the cover story, which was that he was working for some rich and very angry businessmen who had lost their investments in Cuba. But in the moment, Mayhew realized how ridiculous that story would sound to a man like Roselli, and he figured that Roselli was going to figure the whole thing out. He was just too smart, and lying to him right off the bat it would not be good for their long-term relationship. So he decided straight out to tell Roselli the truth, that he was there on behalf of the Central Intelligence Agency in the United States government, and that he was there to ask Roselli for his help in something that was critical to the national security of the United States. Mayhew would reiterate that he felt like he knew Roselli well enough to know that he was a loyal American. As Mayhew danced around the issue, Roselli would look at him and say, help with what? And Mayhew would respond to fight communism 90 miles from Florida. This was still vague enough that Roselli looked at him again and said, how? There was a pause and then Mayhew would say, well, get rid of Castro. Roselli, still perplexed by this whole preposterous line of conversation, said, get rid of him how? Kill him, said Mayhew. <laughs> Johnny continued to drink his coffee and just kind of chuckled as he looked back. And then Johnny would look Mayhew in the eye and say, you know my circumstance with Uncle Sam and you want me to get involved with this? Roselli would go on to explain that the FBI and others had been trying to get something on him for a long time, and that they wanted him in jail. And it was kind of hard to believe that he was sitting here, right here and now, talking with Mayhew about something of this nature, <laughs> and that the government wanted his help on. At the same time, they were right on his tail. Mayhew understood, but he would go on to explain that this was a very secret mission and that there were only a few people who could ever know of its existence and that not even the FBI, whom Mayhew assumed was the nemesis that Roselli was really referring to, not even the FBI would know about this mission if Roselli were to say yes. 
Nobody involved would discuss the mission outside of a small circle of people involved in it. And of course, there would be no public acknowledgement by the U.S. government of Roselli's service. Mayhew was serious, and he would re-emphasize that if he himself were ever linked to the mission, he would deny everything. And he would not reveal, of course, never reveal anyone else's involvement. He would say to Roselli, this is not the beginning of a relationship, and it wasn't a quid pro quo of anything. It was just a one-time request from his government, and no one was going to ask anything more like it of him afterward. Mayhew was also clear that it was a simple yes or no answer. You were either in or you were out. No one was going to ask him a second time. Mayhew would tell Roselli that he held him in very high regard, and that's why he came to him, and that he would pay Roselli a fee of $150,000 for his time in the endeavor. But in the end, this was really something good for the country. Roselli would ask more questions. How quickly does this act have to be completed? And Mayhew would say sooner rather than later as they stared at each other in silence for a while. Roselli would then ask how long he had before he had to make a decision. And Mayhew would say, we need to know now. But Roselli would fire back and say, give me a day. Roselli, for all his character faults, was a man who at least espoused that he loved America. They would depart the Brown Derby, and in short order afterward, Roselli and Mayhew would meet again. And then, Johnny said, he had thought it over, he had asked himself two questions, whether to do it, and then whether it could actually be done or not. And based on all of that, he had made his decision, and he told Mayhew that he was in. But he had two qualifications to his answer of yes. The first one was that he wanted to receive no payment for the work. He would take the assignment as a call of duty from his country. And the second was perhaps in some ways more important to him. He needed to meet whomever was behind this whole thing. It's not that he didn't trust Mayhew, but the extraordinary nature of this request made it important that he knew the people behind the curtain. This was a ticklish request in that Mayhew had violated the protocol already by revealing to Roselli that he was there on behalf of the Central Intelligence Agency. And now, if he was being forced to put Roselli in front of either O'Connell or Sheffield Edwards, they would then have to deal with that. But Roselli insisted on it, and so Jim O'Connell arranged for a meeting to take place in New York City of the three of them. Mayhew had O'Connell pose as a member of Mayhew's private detective firm who had an inside understanding related to Cuba, an intimate understanding related to Cuba, and Roselli was instructed by Mayhew to just pretend not to know that O'Connell was really from the CIA. (laughs) What a complicated web they were beginning to weave, the three men, and they would all fly into New York in the third week of September and check in at the Plaza Hotel on Fifth Avenue. Roselli would register under a pseudonym, John Ralston, and he was from Oakland, California. And O'Connell would check in under a pseudonym, Jim Olds. To add a little poetic justice to the trip, 
These men arrived at about the same time as Fidel Castro would come to New York to make a now-famous speech at the United Nations. While these three men were inside the plaza plotting the assassination of the Cuban leader, Castro himself was literally just a few blocks away in Manhattan, along with the entire throng of his personal following and the local crowds and supporters and protesters and reporters that were also in tow and still a gaze for this man Castro. The meeting went well, and one key and early decision would come out of that on Fifth Avenue, that the plotters would base themselves in South Florida, a place where you could find, at the time, the heart of the Cuban exile community, the core of the Cuban exile community, and the place to be for anti-Castro activities. They put together a reasonable schedule of events that needed to be accomplished in the next phase of the mission, and then they left the plaza. O'Connell would go back to Washington and report to the higher-ups at the CIA that he had met their man from the mafia, and the mission was on. Roselli left New York satisfied that the story that Mayhew had told him over the phone and at the Brown Derby was legitimate. Now that Roselli was going to work for the CIA, there was a minor detail that he knew had to be taken care of in the protocol of the Cosa Nostra. He would need to speak with Sam Giancana and ensure that Giancana was okay with all this. Giancana, as we know, is one of the most famous Chicago mobsters of all time. (laughs) Among his many exploits, he was a trigger man at the famous St. Valentine's Day Massacre, somewhat of a career stop on his way to becoming the Chicago mob boss. Roselli would need to speak with him because if Giancana was not all right with it, then this mission was going to be scrubbed before it got started. Roselli would talk to Giancana, and he liked it. The way Giancana saw it is that Doing another big favor for the U.S. government was just one more chit that he would have in his back pocket. And the more Giancana thought about it, the more he wanted to be in on it himself. And while he was a busy man and getting busier with the things that he was trying to do to help Kennedy get elected and win the vote in Illinois, oh, and oversee a mob business in Chicago, oh, and take care of maintaining several mistresses at the same time. Well, all of this really paled in comparison to a chance to get back at this man Castro, a man that had taken so much from him in terms of wealth. Yes, he wanted to kill the motherfucker. And so, he was in. Giancana was impulsive, and this was another moment of impulsiveness. Now that Giancana decided he liked the idea and he wanted to be in, that created a bit of complication for Johnny Roselli. He would now have to sell the whole idea of Giancana's involvement to Mayhew. And so he went to him, telling him that Giancana was a backup man if anything happened to him, a man who could keep his mouth shut. And he also had an amazing set of contacts as well. He knew it might be an iffy proposition to ask Mayhew to include Giancana because, well, Giancana had a bad reputation amongst FBI types. And the history of all this says that there were conflicting claims as to whether Mayhew actually sought CIA approval for recruiting Giancana. Roselli would later say that he did, but others would say no. But soon, there would be an arranged meeting for O'Connell to meet this man, 
Roselli would arrange for a meeting to occur in October down in Miami. You really had to appreciate Miami at that time in history. Newsweek likened Miami at that time frame to Casablanca, a place that was filled with stateless persons, gun runners, and spies. On October the 11th, Robert Mayhew and Johnny Roselli checked into a suite at the Kenilworth Hotel in Bal Harbor, which is in the northern part of Dade County, just a little north of Miami and south of Broward. This time, Roselli used the pseudonym Jay Rollins, and they got a little R&R time in before O'Connell showed up several days later using the same cover name of Jim Olds. <laughs> Only he was staying in a more modest motel known as the Florida Shores. He would later attribute that to the fact that the CIA gave meager per diem travel allowances. O'Connell would be introduced to Giancana, and Giancana would be introduced under his pseudonym Sam Flood. And he was described to O'Connell as the liaison with the Cubans, the man who knew the man who knew the man. This group would get together and discuss the strategies and the strategic plan that they were developing to get this mission done. They determined that they needed to get Santo Traficante into the mix. First, because they were operating now in Florida, and it was a matter of mafia manners to go to Traficante and ask for his permission to do so to do a thing of this nature in his territory. You've heard about Traficante in previous episodes and know that he spoke fluent Spanish and was the second generation of Traficantes that had spent a good part of their lives in Cuba. Traficante was currently living in the Tampa area at the time of the Cuban Revolution. Traficante had been heavily invested in Havana, and he was a man who saw his destiny as being the boss of bosses for the entire island of Cuba. But of course, the revolution destroyed that dream. They would have a second meeting at the Kenilworth, and this time, Traficante would attend. And he, too, would be there under a pseudonym, Joe the Courier. He, too, was offered up as an individual with close connections in Cuba and highly connected to the anti-Castro community in Miami. Traficante, of course, said yes as well, as he too, like Giancana, assessed the circumstance in a similar way, and he too was highly motivated to see Castro gone. You see, he himself had spent time in Castro's jails. O'Connell would suggest an overt, in-the-open, gangland-style hit, but these mafia dons looked at each other and said no. They knew how well Castro was being guarded, and it was unlikely someone was going to be able to get themselves into position to take a shot like that in an open area. And in addition, as well guarded as Castro was, it would likely be suicide for the shooter. And then you have the circumstance of who in the heck would sign up for that mission, a suicide mission. So the Mafia Dons concluded that they needed to either shoot Castro from a longer distance away with a rifle and a scope, using an expert sniper, or they needed to use some form of slow-acting poison and get close enough to him to get it administered. Roselli would sum it up by saying, something nice and clean. At the end of the discussion, they all settled on the idea of using poison, and Traficante agreed to find the right person for the work and to get them connected into the process as soon as possible but it would require a payment of $10,000 to give to the killer. 
After the meeting adjourned, Mayhew, Roselli, and O'Connell would stay in Miami for a few days, and at one point, while sitting on the beach together, Roselli decided to unmask the charade and tell O'Connell that he knew that O'Connell was working for the CIA. He was careful not to blow things from Mayhew's perspective, and he would say to O'Connell, look, Mayhew didn't tell me anything. I just figured this out. It was a relief on both ends, and the two of them would rapidly develop a closer relationship. As they all waited patiently for Traficante to identify who could be used in the poisoning plot, they would all get back to their other businesses, and their first order of business at that moment in time for Sam Giancana was his love life. It would quickly interfere with this mission and prove to be the genesis of one of the most curious stories that have occurred as part of the assassination lore around these assassination plots. One morning, Roselli would call Mayhew with some distracting news. Giancana was leaving for Las Vegas. Mayhew couldn't believe it. They had all agreed to stay put in Miami after the planning and take part in these initial first steps steps that were so critical and that were being put into motion as they spoke. Mayhew would tell him that it was a secret mission and that they were all required to all continue to be together. Mayhew himself was nervous because the CIA was in high gear and they were pushing Mayhew to make progress quickly. In short, there was no wiggle room here. The planning for the invasion of Cuba was underway and the training of troops were well along, and it was only going to be so long, once these troops were ready, that they could be held in neutral before they were going to have to be released to the project itself. Mayhew couldn't believe it, and so, in order to make sure that everybody was clear on what was happening, Roselli took Mayhew to see Sam, so that Sam could tell him the story himself. Giancana would confirm that he was leaving for Vegas, and Mayhew would ask him why, and he would tell him that he had heard a rumor that his girlfriend was spending time with another man. Giancana needed to know whether this was true, whether his girlfriend Phyllis McGuire was getting intimate with somebody else and cheating on him. And to make Giancana even more angry, he would say it was a sorry two-bit comedian named Dan Rowan. And that's a name that we all know from the famous 60s show, Laugh-In. Mayhew understood Giancana's fury, and he also understood the powerful draw of the circumstance. But nonetheless, Mayhew urged him to think twice about distracting himself with the process of going back to Las Vegas. As there was a real possibility that the group would need to head to Cuba on short notice, or at least organize the next steps in short notice there in Miami. And that meant being together. Well, Mayhew, the private detective in the group, and a man who would claim surveillance as a core competency, would naturally propose an idea to Giancana, an idea which might allow him to avoid the trip back to Vegas. Mayhew would have some of his men bug hotel room and put a tap on the phone and pretty much record everything that was going on either in the hotel room or on the phone and do it 24-7. Jean kind of liked the idea. After all, if Phyllis McGuire was doing the hanky-panky with Dan Rowan, they would catch the action on tape. 
catch her and him red-handed. So Mayhew would initially run the idea past the CIA man that he was working with, hoping that they might themselves take on their responsibility for doing that. The CIA itself had no objections to Mayhew planting the tap, but they wanted no direct involvement. In reality, there may have been a secondary reason for Mayhew wanting this tap to occur and why the CIA was okay with it as well. You see, Giancana was a playboy, and there was always the chance that he might say something in passing to one of these girlfriends of his, say something about the plot, perhaps in a bragging way, while he was in bed. And then, of course, that would be their worst nightmare a girlfriend in the know that might potentially pass it on then to someone else and then have it start spreading like a virus. It could go like wildfire anywhere once it was out of Giancana's head. So this was, in a sense, a test to see if any of the pillow talk that they might capture between McGuire and Rowan contained anything related to the secret mission. It's conjecture about this, but likely the case. It was another element of chaos injected into this secret mission by Momo Giancana. Mayhew was experienced in this kind of work, and he had top-flight equipment and some of the most highly qualified spy masters to do the work. The folks at Rama had done this gig before. The CIA gave its stamp of approval, and soon Mayhew was telling Giancana that it would be only a short period of time before these clandestine and remote recordings would be available to share with Giancana. Mayhew would bring to bear a Miami private eye that he knew reasonably well and another man skilled in electronics eavesdropping. The two would check into the Riviera where Dan Rowan was staying and they then returned to their own nearby room after planting the listening devices in Rowan's room. The reality was that night after night, there was very little going on in Rowan's room. It was very boring. Kind of like the existence of the Maytag repairman. You know, the one that was waiting for some sort of action to occur. Well, one evening, after monitoring Rowan's room, and after a grueling shift of silent monitoring, these men decided to go downstairs to the showroom and catch the Rowan and Martin comedy act. In the meantime, a maid who was bringing up fresh towels knocked on their door, and with no one answering, she let herself into the hotel room, the room where all the monitoring equipment was contained. After she entered the room, she could see all sorts of electronic devices, lots of wiring, and generally a very suspicious electronic setup. So she did what any of the housemaids would do anywhere. She called her supervisor. And her supervisor came up, took a look, and then called the local cops. And they all arrived before Bob Mayhew's boys had returned from the show. The moment they did return from the show, they were arrested. And then the police began to question these two new suspects, the Mayhew boys. When the police took a look at what was going on in the room and also learned that the two had been sent there from someplace out of state... They called the FBI in, and the FBI then proceeded to interrogate these two men as well. And then the FBI learned that these gentlemen were working for Robert Mayhew. As they began their investigation, 
and ran these gentlemen in their FBI databases, the federal agents discovered that Mayhew, among other things, was an ex-FBI man, and he was a black ops cutout agent of the CIA. The moment these agents realized this, the whole circumstance was elevated, and they would send an urgent cable to the Washington office of the FBI. And then, as a result, a criminal investigation was opened, and the FBI went looking for Bob Mayhew. Johnny Roselli was appalled when he heard the story, and it generated a lot of ranting and raving when he caught up with Mayhew. He would also make it a point to tell Giancana what had happened. And about at the end of the story, Giancana had somewhat of an odd response. He wasn't mad at all. He just started laughing. He couldn't stop laughing. In fact, he was laughing so hard, they say, he nearly swallowed his cigar. Meanwhile, the national elections were getting on, and Sam Giancana and his machine in Chicago were doing everything they could to help take enough of Chicago and the Windy City vote to sway the entire election. Well, election day came, and Roselli followed the action along with Giancana, but this time they were both back in Chicago at Giancana's personal headquarters in Forest Park. It's a suburb of Chicago. They were all at the Armory Lounge on West Roosevelt Avenue. It was a former speakeasy, and there were all sorts of Giancana crew there. In the background, you could hear telephones ringing. There were televisions blaring at high volume, trying to get over the noise of the room. There was lots of smoking going on, and Roselli used the afternoon to work the room, as he always did. But he would eventually make his way back to Giancana's office to see Sam and connect with other underworld bosses like David Yaris and Chucky English. It was an atmosphere of excitement now that they would have a man that they owned, and he would be right there in the top position in the White House. And that would mean that all of this pressure that had been mounting and building on the mafia generally, and more particularly on Giancana specifically, would take a turn for the better. Little did Giancana know that at that moment, the FBI was already wiretapping his phones and recording his every word. And the playback of those tapes later would reinforce how much Giancana and the rest of that mafia group considered their efforts to be crucial to the JFK win. There's no real science to determine how much their influence over the voting process contributed to the vote count. But in an overall race where 69 million votes were cast and the difference was only 113,000 votes, and it was even closer in the state of Illinois, there's no doubt that they had an impact. In the current environment that we're now in, in the 21st century, I say this humorously and tragically, that back then with the limited technologies that were available, that the bottom line is there were a lot more dead people voting and a lot more living people voting twice, and a lot more living people who only voted once, but they voted the way Sam Giancana and his people wanted them to, because that was an era that when someone was told to do it, that's what they did, and that's how it worked in those days. And nobody did anything different when the big guy told him what to do. Of course, the jubilation of this victory and the idea that they now had control of a man in the White House would dissolve almost immediately when just a few weeks later, John F. Kennedy would announce that he was appointing his brother Robert to a cabinet position 
as the U.S. Attorney General of the United States. The whole idea here was to quell Robert Kennedy, the man that the mob most hated, the man that had vowed to go after them and prosecute every mobster that he could get his hands on. He was the king of law enforcement when it came to getting after organized crime. And he was the man who Joe Kennedy had given his word to Sam Giancana that he would not be involved heavily in the administration. In the universal vernacular, after hearing the news, Giancana would say, they fucked us, the Kennedys. They fucked us good. Thank you for listening to episode 148 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Join us in episode 149 as we complete the story of Johnny Roselli and the CIA mafia plots related to the Bay of Pigs invasion.